Well, friends, uh, Christmas is almost here, eight days away, a week away, and one day. Everybody's experience is a little different, of course, uh, who you see, how much demand there is on your time, all of the things that are going on. One of the popular versions of a Christmas song calls this the most wonderful time of the year. It's certainly one of the busiest, and, you know, for... Uh, a celebration that's focused historically on Christ, on a very specific celebration. It can certainly get lost in all the things that are going on. Uh, you know, shopping for Christmas used to start the day after Thanksgiving. It was Black Friday, and then it's Black Monday, and that's, you know what I'm saying, the, the shopping, it keeps getting further and further away from Christmas. There's been a lot going on. Uh, office parties, fellowship group parties, uh, people are going to be on the highways, the airports will be busy, lots of homes are going to be hosting and playing taxi service to all kinds of people, It'll definitely be a busy time of year. Uh, you know, on the flip side, for some people, a Christmas, and probably Christmas uniquely so, but Christmas and other holidays like it are sometimes the loneliest uh, time of the year. Uh, depending on what our social capital is and the way of friends and family, either gener generally at any time or simply at the time and the place that we're in for that occasion, it can highlight the fact that I don't have those family and friends, those folks to hang out with. So our experience on all of this can vary greatly. Uh, for all the additions, the accretions, uh, parties, whatever it is, popular level or historically, that have been added to the celebration of Jesus' birth, Christians have been doing this formally for about 1,700 years. So you, you stand in a grand tradition of Christians doing this. The first official recorded celebration was 336 AD. This was still in the time of Constantine when Christianity was coming out of the shadows of oppression and was sort of gaining legitimacy in the wider culture. So the incarnation remains of the highest importance, and it's well worth our time, attentions, and celebration. And in uh, focusing this morning sort of on where we're starting and then where we end up as well, the worthiness of the birth of Jesus, Jesus' birthday to celebrate is really the thing. So that we're aware of it, it's not, it's not commanded. Uh, Rick's going to lead us later in this service in remembering the Lord in his suffering, death, and resurrection at the Lord's Supper. Jesus commanded that, didn't he? He said, you do this, and when you do, remember me. He didn't command the observance of his birth or his birthday, but it's certainly well worthy of celebration. Uh, there is no redemption of any kind apart from Jesus' birth. And the incarnation, you talk about miracle of miracles, we'll talk about this a little bit in the message, but how does the infinite God take on humanity and remain unchanged, how does this happen? You know, we talk about it. The truth is we have no way of knowing what this looks like. We would have to be God to know how all that works and how it's possible, and we're not. But we can certainly celebrate what God gave us in Christ. It's signal, it's worthy, and I hope we do that, and not only do it, but do it well. Uh, Kent read out of Luke uh, 1 there. I want to read... Uh, one verse from Luke 24 by way of introduction. Uh, Luke 24, 17. You remember after Jesus rose from the dead, he took a walk with a couple of friends heading west out of Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus. And one of the things he said there to them was, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them 
in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So starting with Moses, you know, Moses is the author, human author of the first five books of the Bible. So he starts at the beginning of the Bible and he works through the prophets to show these disciples where he was, that he was always in the scriptures. He's the theme of scripture broadly. And he went back and he walked them through that and showed them some of the particulars. So beginning with Moses, first five books of the Bible, and what you'll see is there's this thread throughout the rest of the Bible that not only the Old Testament now, that not only addresses the Messiah's coming, so the, the, the saving king that would come, you know, not only a redeemer, we tend to think of the savior from sin, but for Jews, it was a king who would rule us and raise up Israel and we would be God's covenant people in this time of great, great blessing. So you see those elements, but specifically you see God the Father sort of sending out some Christmas, some birthday cards ahead of time in those same Old Testament texts. And we're going to look at a few of those this morning. Like Jesus, we'll start with Moses as well. So think of the passages we look at this morning as a Christmas card. And it was sent out ahead and it was telling people, get ready because the birthday is coming. Okay, that's the, the lens we're using as we look through this together. If you have your Bible we're going to be in just a few passages this morning. So this is Genesis 3.15. Uh, Genesis 3.15 is called the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel. So you remember chapter 1 and 2 is the creation. And chapter 3, you know, Adam and Eve, our first parents, they're our parents, right? We, we, we come from them. They're not only our first parents, they're our representatives, and God says, hey, enjoy anything, enjoy everything I've given you, one prohibition, don't eat from that tree. And of course, the serpent comes along and he tempts them and they eat and they disobey and they die. And so you remember God comes up and Adam and Eve, they're hiding, they know something now that they shouldn't, didn't before. But as God addresses this trio, he starts with the serpent. And this is what he says in part to the serpent. Verse 15. He says, I will put enmity, so that's a conflict or friction, there's going to be animus between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, so Eve's offspring, will bruise your head. So there's going to be a death blow to the serpent by the offspring of Eve and you shall bruise his heel. He's going to conquer you, but it's going to be painful for him, but it's not the end of life in any ultimate sense. It's painful, but he conquers you. So this is the first promise. It's not only the first promise of the gospel, it's the first promise of the incarnation. The one God would send to redeem mankind by crushing the serpent is called Eve's offspring. So we're reading from the ESV and it's a lovely translation. I like it. I don't like this translation here. So the Hebrew word, it's zera, and it's literally seed. So depending on the context, that word gets translated different ways. So ESV here says your offspring, but it's your seed. And if you read that in the text, if, if you do your own search and you can see where does zera show up, in the Old Testament, well, you see then it becomes directly connected to other promises God makes, but it's not always translating. The English is translating the same word different way, so you may miss the connection. But so this is going to be the seed of the woman. It's going to be the woman's offspring, but literally her seed. 
our Savior is the seed of the woman. God doesn't say it would be Adam's descendant, but Eve's. Now you remember in the line of responsibility, God gets to Adam last, but, but he is the federal head of humanity, and he is the one responsible for the fall. And so you know when you read in the New Testament, it talks about Adam in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 5, because he was the representative of all of us. And yet God comes and he doesn't say the Savior will be Adam's son. He's not going to be identified through Adam. He's going to be identified through Eve, through the woman. That's interesting, isn't it? I wonder why that is. So Genesis 3.15, the first Christmas card announcement, the first time God told us something about our coming Savior and salvation. The one who would destroy the tempter and save the tempted and sinning, and that would be people like you and me, is identified as coming from a woman, but not from a man. Now, we make an inference here because we know the rest of the story. You know, sometimes you ask, what did the people in the time in which a scripture was given, what did they know? What did they understand? And, and sometimes, guys, they, they didn't know. You know, I think it's in Second Peter where uh, Peter says that uh, prophets long to look into the things that you know. Prophets who spoke for God sometimes didn't actually know what's all involved in the thing God's showing or speaking to other people through me. So we don't always know what they knew. But there's an inference here about the Savior that's going to come is going to be identified through Eve. So this is an intimation that Jesus' birth would be supernatural. His coming would be from a woman, but not from a man. That term for Eve's descendant, seed, Zerah, is used frequently throughout the Old Testament. What you'll see, it connects the promise of Eve's seed to Abraham, to the patriarchs. It's the seed of David that's the promised coming king in 2 Samuel 6. So it's the seed of the woman. We know the first Christmas card says it's about a birth, and the Savior's going to come from Eve, identified as coming from Eve, not from Adam. Well, if you shift gears way, way forward to about just say 750 B.C. or so, during Isaiah's years and prophecy, you can turn to Isaiah 7. That, this is a section, it, it, it takes multiple chapters that are dealing with effectively the same time frame, and that's helpful to know. You know, we put chapters and verses in, but chapters and verses aren't original, and sometimes the divisions made in the Scriptures as we have them are not helpful. Sometimes they cut thoughts off in the middle, and you think, I'm talking about one thing, and then I'm talking about something different. No, you're talking about the same thing. Sometimes those chapters are not helpful. Isaiah adds to the information about the seed of the woman, stating that the Savior would be identified through a human mother. The seed of the woman would be born of a virgin. So, guys, I'm going to, I hope to uh, be clear and avoid confusion in what I say on this text. So, Isaiah 7:14. Just FYI, its interpretation has been hotly contested historically. And so we want to pull this apart in a couple ways and still see what the text says, okay? So if you're aware of this, uh, you may have your own opinion. I'm giving you my opinion, and my opinion here is the opinion of many, many others who are much more learned in the languages than I am. So here's the setting for Isaiah 7 and 8 and 9. King Ahaz, about 735 B.C., King Ahaz is on the throne in Judah, the southern kingdom. And he's got trouble because the kings 
in Israel on their north, and then Syria north of them, they want Judah to come in and form a trio against the empire, the rising empire of Assyria. And Ahaz doesn't want any part of it. He says, no thanks. So the kingdoms of Syria and Israel are plotting to take Ahaz off the throne, to put a puppet king in his place, to gain the power of Judah so that the trio will come against Assyria. They know they're the rising threat and they don't want to be overrun. So if we band together, all three of us, maybe we can oppose the Assyrians. Well, King Ahaz is not feeling the love. And Isaiah is going to interact with them. And so what God's going to do is two things with King Ahaz in that time frame, okay? In, in that day, not future tense, but in that day. So God is going to tell King Ahaz, he's going to say through the prophet, you don't need to worry about those guys coming in and removing you. Uh, it's not going to happen. So he tells him verbally, uh, in just a little while, those guys that you're so threatened by, they're going to be out of the picture. But then he also says, and I'm going to show you. So I'm going to tell you, I'm telling you this is the case, and then I'm going to show you, I'm going to validate my word by giving you a sign. And the sign is, a virgin will give birth. And then in chapter 8, there's a birth. And God says about this little boy that would be born, that before he knows how to speak to his mom and his dad, those guys that are threatening Ahaz, they're going to be gone. So within two or three years, you know, there's going to be a conception, and a little boy's going to start to grow. And before he's old at all, I suppose still a toddler when kids start talking, I think. My memory's good. Uh, those guys are going to be out of the picture. You don't need to worry about them. So in the time frame that Isaiah is giving this, a woman conceives, it's Isaiah's wife, has a boy, and all this is literally fulfilled. But here's the problem. The Hebrew word that we translate in ESV, virgin, is Alma. Alma. And Alma can mean either a virgin, like we think of a virgin, but it can also mean a maiden or a young woman. Okay? Isaiah's wife is not a virgin. She's a young woman, and she has a baby, a baby boy. And for Isaiah 7.14 to have any fulfillment, any meaning for Ahaz, it has to be in his time, or it's no good. So God says, I'm going to say something, and I'm going to show you, I'm going to verify it through a sign. So... The question that comes up for English speakers or anybody who's not using the Hebrew is, how do we translate the Hebrew Alma? So you see where this goes. Do you see the trouble with this? Is Isaiah 7.14 only about a young woman in Isaiah's time, his wife, having a baby boy? Or is it a messianic prophecy about Jesus? And we say, well, yes and yes. I think it was in the 1950s, but, but here's the problem. I think it was in the 1950s, the Revised Standard Version had an update. And they changed the English translation of Alma from virgin to maiden or young woman. And conservative Christians were up in arms. 
Because they said basically what you're doing is you're negating the virgin birth. And they had a book burning. And you know what they were burning? Revised Standard Bibles. I think they were off base. I think they missed it. Here's the thing. In the Hebrew, the word can mean either. And we know from the New Testament use, it's about Jesus. Because it's quoted specifically for and about Jesus. So I love this at this level. With one word, God spoke into the setting of the time. And he used a word that could refer to Isaiah's wife and did. Because the boy's born in chapter 8. But it's also a word that can and does, relating to Jesus, mean a virgin birth. And actually, Kent read a text for us already from Luke 1 in which that comes up. So there was a near-term fulfillment, if you will, in Ahaz's day of Isaiah's wife having a little boy. And those guys were removed, the, the Israeli and the Syrian kings were removed. That happened. But ultimately, we say, Isaiah 7.14 was always about Jesus and his virgin birth. So that's what we'll look at right here. Let me get this if I can. Okay. Okay, yeah, I think I've said everything I want to say there for the time being. So there's a passage whose Hebrew word can mean either, and it's used in both references. It's used as a young woman with Isaiah's wife. It's used as a virgin birth, as you know, when you get to Luke's gospel. And this is interesting. So when the Hebrews, when the Jews translated the Hebrew Bible for the Greek-speaking Jews of their day, just call it about 250 BC, they translated Alma, Parthenos. They translated the word virgin. Parthenos in Greek can only mean a virgin. It's not like the Hebrew word that can mean either. They saw the near-term fulfillment. They historically knew what God had done in the days of Ahaz and Isaiah. They translated it virgin because they understood that the, the reference in Isaiah 7.14 still had application and that it would be a virgin birth of their Messiah yet to come. And so that's why you'll see the translation today is almost always defaulting to translating the Hebrew as virgin in Isaiah 7.14 in the near-term application, maiden or young lady is the better term, but ultimately it was always about the virgin birth. So there's a near-term fulfillment and there's a later-term ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And we'll look at that again in just a little bit. So there's a Christmas card in Isaiah 7 that says a virgin is going to give birth. So Genesis 3.15, it's the seed of the woman, not the man. Isaiah 7, a virgin, again, speaking of the woman, not of the man, is going to give birth. And this is then in Isaiah 9. This is a Christmas card just a couple chapters later. And it describes the, the boy. It describes the son of the woman, the son of the virgin, as the king. So this is Isaiah 9. These are all, hopefully for you, well-known uh, Christmas passages from the Old Testament. And there it reads, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. And guys, these are, these are titles. And remember, names in Scripture are very important. 
they describe something important about the person that's being identified. So when this, when this son of the virgin is identified, he's called Wonderful Counselor. He is the, the epitome of wisdom and knowledge. He's called Mighty God. He's called Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there's no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. Remember that by the time Isaiah's writing, they're all aware of the promise God made in 2 Samuel 7 to David that it would be his descendant, the son of David, would be that messianic king that would come. This is making clear reference to that here in Isaiah 9. Uh, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This isn't a contingent on humans being able to pull something off. God's power, God alone is going to make sure this thing happens. It's not dependent on humans figuring something out. God is going to bring this to pass. So the child to be born will one day be ruler over Israel. He'll come from the tribe of Judah. That'd be out of the end of Genesis and the kingly line of David. He's going to fulfill those prophecies they were already aware of. His kingdom will never end and it will be characterized by peace, justice and righteousness. And all this will be the case because this coming king will be God himself. It's not just a descendant of David. It's God himself. And we saw that in those titles, mighty God and everlasting father. It's not a mere mortal. He's the everlasting father. He is the mighty God. So the day of Jesus reign described by Isaiah there in chapter nine, that has not occurred, but the birth of Isaiah seven has. If you turn then towards the end of your Old Testament, I don't have a page number for this, by the way, but this is Micah. Micah's is certainly one of the most famous of the Christmas cards out of the Old Testament. And Micah lived at the same time Isaiah did. I don't know if they were neighbors if, or if they knew each other or knew each other well. But Micah was, was living and speaking at the same time Isaiah was. So this is about 740 B.C. or so. And if you read Micah, it's a short book, but like um, many aspects or elements of the prophetic books, it's not easy to follow. It's not a storyline. It's not a clear narrative. And sometimes you wonder who's on first. Well, in a passage that's dealing with future dangers to Judah, Assyria, and Babylon, God gives this message, this word of comfort about this coming king that's going to ultimately deliver Israel from all enemies, you know, near, far, now, or forever. So out of Micah 5, verse 2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and guys, there was at least one other Bethlehem in, in uh, Israel. Do you know there's a, a Topeka, Illinois? There's a Topeka, Illinois. And the reason I say that is this. If, if I start to type in Topeka in a map, it shows me Topeka, Illinois. So I know it's there. So it's got a, Topeka's a unique name. I would have thought there was one. No, there's two. Well, there was at least two Bethlehems in Israel. And so that's why this is qualified. It's Bethlehem Ephrathah. It's Bethlehem in the area, the tribal area of Judah. It's that same area where Rachel uh, died and was buried. It's that, it's that Bethlehem. It's not another Bethlehem. Uh, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, you're not an impressive setting. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, 
whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Verse 4, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So Micah says the coming ruler would be born in Bethlehem. And if you look at verse 2, it says his, uh, his coming forth is from of old. That's the Hebrew olam. It's from eternity. So the one Micah says is coming, his existence predates time. He's before time. You remember John the Baptist says of Jesus, uh, he's greater than me and he existed before me. And you say, well, hold on. John was conceived first, then Jesus. But John says, well, no, he's before me. Well, it's because he's from eternity past. So this king, his existence predates time. That's only God. Only God predates time and the rest of creation. He predates time and his kingdom, he predates time. His kingdom will be without end in time. He's eternal and in his role as redeemer, he's going to reign forever. He's eternal. His rule going forward will be eternal as well. So the ruler whose existence is from eternity will be God's shepherd king. He will rule in Yahweh's strength and Yahweh's name to the ends of the earth, not only without limit on time, but space. He'll rule over all the earth. So Genesis 3, a couple in Isaiah, and then one in Micah. And we want to pick up and see how the New Testament treats those Christmas cards, those announcements of Jesus's birth treated by the New Testament authors. So the seed of the woman and the virgin birth out of Genesis and Isaiah, as some of the verses in the New Testament speak of Eve's seed in regard to the virgin birth, so that the Savior's not going to have a human father. Some of the New Testament references bring up that point. Others bring up the, the other elements, sort of the task this one would do. He would come and he would destroy. He would be the serpent crusher. He would be the one who puts an end to the power and energy of Satan. You'll see both of those in a couple of these verses. So if you start in Luke, Luke and Matthew reference Jesus' birth as unconnected from any earthly father. So Kent read in our introduction from Luke 1, and I just want to highlight a couple elements of that again. So when Gabriel comes to Mary, he said, and listen to the text, uh, he was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So in the Greek, this is Parthenos. So there's no question whatsoever, if we were trying to translate out of the, the Hebrew Alma, this, this isn't a word that can mean one or the other. It's a word that only means virgin, always and only means virgin. Uh, you continue in there, and she says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Again, think of Genesis 3 and Isaiah 7, 14. And this, the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. The child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. It's not Joseph's son. I think it's in Matthew's genealogy. <clears throat> Might be Luke's. Uh, where the, the scripture says, being supposed the son of Joseph. 
It's that's what people thought, being supposed the son of Joseph, but it was a supposition, it wasn't reality. God the Father was his father. This is important theologically also. Um, you know, we say things in theology, we say them. But if you say, well, how does that work or what does that look like? You're like, I don't know. Because he's God and I'm not. God the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. That's what Scripture says. He's eternally begotten of the Father. And in the incarnation, God the Father begets the Son in the incarnation in time. He's eternally begotten of the Father, and yet in the incarnation, He's incarnate in time in our humanity by the Father's doing and the Spirit's presence and power. That's what Gabriel referred to. uh, The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. There's no human father. That's the deal. That's the fulfillment of Genesis and Isaiah 7. This um, This is no less remarkable than creation. You know, if you read Genesis 1 with a, with a yawn, it's like, hold on, there's nothing. And then God speaks and there's something. That's, that's miracle. Only God can do that. But this, guys, this is nothing we can do, is it? You can't procreate God. This, this only happened once. And, and how does the eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God take on our humanity, remained in his divinity unchanged and yet fully Fully human? It's like, how does that work? I don't know. We say it because Scripture says it. But we can't get there. We say it because Scripture says it, even if our minds can't take it in. So God the Son, the eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, second person of the triune God, somehow taking on our humanity, fully God and fully man. So it's important that we recognize at Christmas that the first promise of redemption was not about Jesus' role as the Messiah, as the saving king. It was not about his resurrection. It was not about his glorious coming kingdom. It was all about his birth. And if we don't start there, if that's not our starting point, we're in trouble because there's no salvation. You know, at the end of the day, if we say, uh, what's with that? You know, what's at stake? Well, it's it's our salvation is what's... (laughs) is what's at stake. Nothing less. And also, God's glory as well. Well, the short-term fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy we mentioned in King Ahaz's day was also, I don't know if you'd say it was an echo or it was an affirmation or it was a reminder of the certainty of the ultimate fulfillment of Jesus' incarnation. So this is Matthew 1. Starting in verse 20, it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, Mary's fiance, in a dream. Joseph's engaged to young Mary, and she must tell him, I'm pregnant, and he's a noble man. He wants to do right. He wants to put her away secretly so she's not harmed, but he's out of this situation. And, the, and he's told by God in a dream, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She hasn't been unfaithful. This isn't some other man's child. Um, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus or God saves or God is salvation for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet and he cites Isaiah 714. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So we say Isaiah 7.14 was always ultimately about Jesus. 
And it couldn't be a mere maiden or young woman that would fulfill this. It had to be a virgin. That was the case for Mary. The one who will ultimately reign as the king of Isaiah 9. That's what Isaiah 7 is about. I'll mention a couple other texts just for reference. Hebrews 2.14, so a different element of the prophecy's fulfillment. This is from Genesis 3.15. The writer of the Hebrews said, since the children share in flesh and blood, since the children, that's us, um, we're human, we're we're composed of of flesh and blood, our humanity. Uh, He himself, Jesus, partook of the same things, our humanity, so that's incarnation, why, this goes right back to Genesis 3.15, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So Genesis 3.15 says the coming one, Eve's seed, will crush the serpent. And the writer of the Hebrew says he came to destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. 1 John 3.8 says the reason the Son of God appeared, now we could fill in a blank here, we could say some other things, but John under inspiration here says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So the New Testament authors, they understand the Old Testament and they apply them directly to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, Isaiah 7.14. He's the coming king of Isaiah 9 and he's the one through his death and resurrection who has crushed the serpent's head. If you look at Bethlehem too, as, as well, Matthew 2, um, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the days of Herod the king, wise men came and they say, uh, where is he who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star, it rose and we've come to worship him and Herod the king heard and he's troubled and Jerusalem's wondering what's going on, and he calls the chief priests and the scribes, and he asks them, where is the Messiah meant to be born? And they told him, and they quote Micah 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, you Bethlehem in the land of Judah, no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the Old Testament is not only filled with affirmations of who God would send and what he would do, but you've got very specific Christmas cards, announcements of Messiah's birth, what it would be like, what it would not be characterized by. God sent those out well ahead of time. So if we say, why the virgin birth? Why the incarnation of God the Son as one of us? Why is Jesus' birth worth celebrating? Why was it a necessity? Why would God go to that trouble? If God was to save any of his image bearers after the fall, he needed a means of atoning for their sins. And guys, this is something we have to punctuate all the time. God is no less just than he is loving, no no more or less uh, loving than he is just. So God says, I know my creatures are going to sin and fall. They're going to die spiritually and then they're going to die physically. And I want to do something about that. but, But what do I do? Because justice requires they be punished. Justice requires that they be punished. And so how can God in love fulfill justice, punish our sins, their sins, our sins, and yet still redeem them? So if you and I, this is something that we try and make clear when we talk to others about the gospel. You know, when you and I talk to others about Christ, it's not 
A happy life, guys, we all die, right? Your life and mine, it's short. We die. Had a conversation with a gal just this last week. Some of you will appreciate this. We had a conversation, and she says, I think the world is going this way. And I said, I do too. And I said, you know, God talks about that in the scriptures. That's, that's what the Bible talks about. And she said, do you read your Bible? She asked me, do you read your Bible? I was thrilled. And I said, well, yes, I do. And then she does this. She says, every day? I'm not making this up. And I said, well, yes, every day. Every day I read my Bible. Where am I going with this guy? (laughs) I had such a good time in that conversation. It's overwhelming what I'm supposed to be doing here. Sorry. Okay, yeah, sorry. Uh, Love and justice, yeah. So we want to make sure when we talk about the gospel with others, which I did with her, by the way, you know, you're with Jesus or you're not. You get life or you get death. That when we present the gospel, it's not about a happy life on earth, because lots of Christians do not have happy lives on earth. It's about forgiveness of sins and eternal life in God's presence. And that we're saying that to fulfill both God's love and justice, there had to be a way for our punishment to be taken without us bearing it. And so how does that happen? So that's why it's the seed of the woman, not the man, God the Father, Jesus the Son, becoming fully human for us, so he's got no sin and no culpability. If any of us wanted to die for anyone else as an atonement for sin, could we do that? Because no, because you're just dying for your own sin. So if God doesn't instill in humanity somebody who's human, justice requires it's it's same for same, it's like for like. If he doesn't, we don't get someone who's human on one hand, but without any guilt, we have no sin bearer. We have no means for God's justice to be taken care of as well as his love. And that's the necessity of the incarnation. That's the necessity of the virgin birth. Guys, if you don't have a virgin birth, you've got no salvation. Nothing else matters. You die and you pay for your sins forever. So when we're thinking about Christmas and celebrating Christmas I'm all for the happy celebrations. I'm all for the good food. Invite me. I'm all for whatever it is that we see as part of that happy side of Christmas. But we remember, this is life and death serious. That when we celebrate Jesus' birth, we're celebrating the arrival of our Savior apart from which there is no salvation. So, you know, on Resurrection Sunday, we're celebrating the resurrection absolutely. Guys, there's no resurrection without the incarnation. And that was a miracle of miracles. And that's why the the virgin birth had to be, you know, why the seed of the woman had to be, or we have no deliverance and we have no salvation. We have no savior. John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if you were a Jew, you knew any sacrifice that's brought before God has to be spotless. And the sacrifice that be adequate for our sins had to be morally perfect, had to be spotless. You know, nothing, nothing untoward or negative in him had to be perfect or he could not atone for our sins. God's been talking about the incarnation literally for millennia. The incarnation specifically. 
He spoke of it in birth announcement through the ages to prepare Adam's fallen race for the seed of the woman. And when we're presenting Christ to others, Christmas or any other time, we're presenting the only hope they'll ever have of knowing their sins are forgiven and their sons and daughters of the living God living out life on the earth, short, a short go, and looking forward, I think as Kent mentioned on the front end, of Jesus' second coming and our participation with him in ruling and reigning forever. That's our hope. The hope in life only is, is a very short hope. I'm glad to know Jesus now, right? We, we've got a sense of peace. We have joy. We have God's love for us. We have God's love in us. All that's great. But if all we got from Jesus, from the incarnation, was a happier life, we'd still die and we'd still suffer for sins forever. So this is a thing. There was the necessity. The incarnation is the first promise of redemption. It heads up the law. It punctuates the prophets. The Father foretold it. The Spirit initiated it. The angels declared it. The shepherds rejoiced in it. The enemy dreaded it. And we should, we should celebrate it. And here's the thing. If Jesus of Nazareth isn't all that, uh, Christmas is a false holiday. It's a false hope. And we should have nothing to do with it. And why anyone who's not a Christian would celebrate Christmas as Christ's birth is beyond me because it makes no sense. Now, if I just say I've got a, a winter holiday, happy holidays. If I've got a winter holiday, I get it. But Christmas, I don't. Since the virgin did give birth, since Bethlehem received its redeemer at birth, since the boy became our savior, and the defeater of Satan, we should celebrate. Our celebration should be holy and happy and focused on Christ and the gift of life and joy we have in him now and in its fullness yet to come. So guys, as you raise, as we raise glasses, toast Christ for Christmas. And as we hang out around the tables, man, it, it, there should be on one hand joy and delight, absolutely. Absolutely. And on the other, there should be on our knees, face to the ground, humble thanksgiving that God the Son took on our humanity to save us from our sin. It's a holy, holy moment. Well, if you would stand, and I want to read together from the Isaiah 9 passage. It certainly bears repeating. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Read with me, please. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this.